Hi, and welcome to Job Search the Smart Way, a podcast for graduate students and PhDs. If you're wondering what you can do with your degree, you're in the right place. You'll learn top tips and strategies you can apply to build an impactful career and meaningful life. Your host, Dr. Marin Wood, will share evidence-based research so that you can job search the smart way. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dr. Marin Wood. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, today, dear listener, I am in a mood. I'm in a mood because I keep having conversations with PhDs and graduate students who are trying to make career decisions in the absence of any evidence or data. And the career advice that they're being given is terrible. It's inaccurate. And when we provide graduate students and PhDs with terrible career advice that's divorced from any evidence, it ruins their lives. Like, let's just be honest. And Graduate students and PhDs deserve honest, accurate, and transparent information about what's actually happening in the academic job market, and they're not getting it. So I recently spoke to a woman who just completed her MA, and she was being encouraged to go on to do a PhD, and she was was thinking about this. Uh, her faculty mentor had told her, you know, she'd make a wonderful scholar. And she was a little bit unsure about whether or not she wanted to do an academic job. Um, she was from a working class background. She didn't really understand the financial implications of taking on a PhD. Yes, PhDs can be funded, but they're not funded that, you know, they're funded at a fraction of starting salaries that someone could go and have with an MA. You know, and so we had a conversation about what she needed, and what she needed was like a job and she needed a career. And so we talked about the financial risks of doing a PhD, and we talked about the fact that there were almost no jobs in the field that she was looking at pursuing. No one had told her. She was absolutely shocked. And I understand from the perspective of educators, we want to encourage working class women, people of cl- color other minorities, to pursue academic careers, right? We don't want this just to be a career path for the rich and the connected. But the problem is, it is a career path for the rich and the connected. The financial risks of doing a PhD are enormous. And people need to have that information so that they can make an informed career decision. Yes, they may decide to continue to pursue a PhD against the odds, but they should know what the odds are, and they don't. On another call, I was talking with someone who was in his late 40s, who was year one in a PhD program, and he was wanting to start thinking about, you know, plan Bs. His plan A was to finish his PhD and and become faculty. And in the course of the conversation, he said, you know, well, the other day, my advisor asked me, what kind of institution do you want to work at? You know, are you thinking you're going to want to go to an R1 institution or a teaching institution? And I was flabbergasted that a faculty member would pretend like a PhD in today's job market had a choice. Like as though we're sitting there looking at all of these options and thinking, well, you know, I'd like to go here or I'd like to go there. You know, the reality is there are just not enough jobs for all the talented people and you don't get to choose. You're lucky if you ever land one job in academia. You don't land two or three and then choose. 
And the other piece of this is that no one had been honest with him about age discrimination in academic hiring, that assistant professors and tenure track jobs are for life. And so a department is going to be more likely to hire someone who is in their 20s and 30s, who has a career of 30 to 40 years, than somebody who's going to be in their mid-50s. And again, in this conversation, he had no idea how few jobs there were in his discipline. So on the call, I had him go to the academic job wiki and look at his discipline. And he was horrified. I think there was less than 60 jobs. That didn't even include the ones that he was qualified for. You know, those, that was just the broad discipline. We didn't even start reading them through to like drill down to like an of the 60, which ones can you qualify for? No one had told him. So I get it. Telling the truth about the academic job market is tough. The data that is available is spread out all over the place, and you have to know where to look to even find it. And the data is depressing. In a webinar I did a few weeks ago, I was sharing some of the data that I've been able to collect, and someone suggested that I should put a trigger warning on this presentation because the data was so unbelievably depressing and new. They had no idea. So, I mean, we have to start telling the truth to graduate students, postdocs, and adjuncts about the state of the academic job market. And we must do better in collecting accurate information to share with departments, faculty, students. It needs to be in a centralized location, at least by discipline, where people can actually go find it. Now, I did my PhD in history. And the American Historical Association is one of the few professional associations that does a good job about this. And that it actually just came out this past week, which is another reason why this is on my mind, because even though the AHA does an excellent job in collecting the data, it doesn't seem to be very widely shared with history PhD graduate students really before they're actually on the job market. And then again, it comes as a shock. The dire situation facing history PhDs who are focused exclusively on landing academic careers. So, you know, the AHA data shows that we are at a historic low in the number of jobs, and that was pre-pandemic. There's also been a slight decline in the number of PhDs that are graduating out of history programs. But the the piece that came out of this report that shocked people, again, because there's such, such little information that's being collected and shared, was that most jobs in history were filled by people who were ABD or year one on the job market. The majority of jobs went to people who were ABD or year one on the job market, and Twitter lost its mind. People freaked out. Now, here's the thing. I actually knew this because a few years ago, I did a study for the Chronicle of Higher Education tracking uh, academic hiring in 11 disciplines. And unfortunately, the data isn't publicly available anymore. But what I learned doing that study was that for humanities and social sciences, that's true. Jobs went ABD or year one on the job market. After that, at the three to five year mark, jobs were going to people with multi-year visiting assistant professorships at high ranking programs or people who had prestigious postdocs. And what was also true after the three-year mark was that most of the jobs were going to people in just 10 programs. And then at the five-year mark, 
people who were landing jobs five, six, seven years after their PhDs, well, they were assistant professors making lateral career moves. In STEM, what I found was that people got jobs at the three to five year mark, generally after competing, completing one or two postdocs. And then after that, very few people landed jobs. Okay, so how did I actually go about doing this study? Well, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to challenge you that to start doing your own, your own studies if you're interested in pursuing a tenure track job. And if you are within the academy and you're listening to this podcast, start pushing your professional association to do more, to collect better data, to make it publicly available, and to encourage a culture of transparency in your discipline. If you're in one of the disciplines that has an active academic job wiki, well, then that's where you're going to start. So go to the jobs wiki um, for last year and uh, for 2019-2020 and create a list of the jobs. Um, You can make sure that in your Google sheet, you're including the, the department, the rank, and something about the subject matter expertise that they're looking to for in, in the person that they're looking to hire. And then you go to the website and you see who they hired. Now, when I did this for the Chronicle, I found that about 30% of jobs were never filled. They were failed searches. And I chatted with Rob Townsend, who uh, was at the AHA at the time, because I'd worked with Rob on some, some studies. And as I mentioned before, the AHA is one of the few academic disciplines who does a really good job of collecting data. And when Rob was doing um, the surveys and, and data for the AHA, he said that was about what he found too, that about 30% of jobs are never filled. So think about that. If there are 20 jobs that you're actually eligible for and 30% of them are never filled, you know, start doing the math, start drilling down. Like, what is the actual bottom in your discipline? Um, and so what you, when you collect the data about the people who got hired, you know, what year did they earn their PhD? Where did they earn their degree from? Uh, And you can generally see that just from their CV and any other kind of information you want to track. But those were the two things that I did. Oh, and prior position, because that was really interesting to see, you know, what kind of position they held before landing their uh, assistant professor job. So you can see that from the CVs or, you know, oftentimes it's just a faculty profile page. But it's completely possible to do this because I did it for 11 disciplines. And then look, you know. Who are they hiring? How long are they on the job market? Chances are it's going to align with what the AHA found if you're a humanities and social sciences. Most jobs are going to go to people ABD in year one on the job market. Um, There's going to be a a certain number of departments where they're going to be minting most of the PhDs that land the jobs. Uh, And you'll be able to see really how few contingent faculty members are ever breaking in to the ranks of assistant professors. I think you'll be really shocked. Now, in other disciplines, if you don't have historic data, what you'll need to do is start in September here uh, when the jobs start getting posted, because oftentimes professional association job boards um, aren't uh, archived. And so what will happen is they'll post a job, and then when the closing date passes, the job will disappear. So you're going to have to collect the data in two sets, which I also did for part of my study. So watch the professional association job boards in a year, write down all of the jobs that come up in your Google sheet, you know, get friends, crowdsource this, get on Twitter, whatever you need to do to get the data done. And then at the end of the year, um, you'll have to just wait until September or October when um, departments actually update their websites. And then you can go and do, you know, who actually got hired. 
Now, if you're a faculty member and you're listening to this podcast or you're a graduate student um, who has ties to a professional association, push them. This should be done at a national level. It should be done through professional associations who can be a central place, a central agency for departments who are hiring in a particular discipline. Um, and they should encourage a, a culture of transparency. Like this isn't a secret. This information is publicly available. The job posting is publicly available and who gets hired is publicly available. So this isn't a secret. We're not tracking, you know, salaries. We're just saying who got jobs. Um, and this should be done in a public way. It should be done with transparency. All right, the second step then is to actually figure out your odds. Now, if you can just look at the number of uh, jobs posted in your large discipline, so anthropology, sociology, history, then you can go to the survey of earned doctorates and you can see how many PhDs are graduating every year in your discipline. Um, So let's say that you're in history, right? And you see that there are, you know, a couple hundred jobs that are posted in history, but there are a thousand new history PhDs. Well, you know, that's a pretty big mismatch between the number of jobs and the number of people that are going to be competing for those jobs. Now, if you're on the job market, you want to be a little bit more strategic about this. Read through the job postings and actually identify how many jobs you realistically can apply for. Now, I know that sometimes people are like, well, apply for stuff even if you're not 100% of a match. But, you know, it's a buyer's market. It's highly unlikely that someone will hire you for an assistant professor position if, you're, if you aren't 100% a match. I mean, they don't need to. They're getting hundreds of applications for these jobs. Why are they going to go outside of the field? They don't need to. So realistically, how many jobs can you apply for? And when I do this exercise, I maybe, depending on the year, will find between 10 and 20 jobs in early American history that I can apply for. Usually it's closer to 10. Some years it's like five. And then when you read the jobs, how likely would you be to accept it? Are you interested in moving to a a job where where you'll teach a 5-5 load or where you'll live in a really expensive city but only make $40,000 a year? Like how likely are you to accept that job? So let's say you're looking at 10 jobs that you actually have a shot at. And then once you eliminate the ones that are exhaustive teaching loads, high administration, parts of the world you don't want to live in, Maybe you're looking at like five jobs, five to 10 jobs. And in the humanities and social sciences, they're getting around 100 applications for every academic job. Um, That's what people are saying on social media. Again, we don't know. Um, The AHA did ask that question in a survey they did of people who post the jobs. But again, like that's information that a, a professional association should be pushing for. What is the average number of applications that people are getting for our jobs? Let's give students and adjuncts and postdocs a realistic understanding of the job market, of their chances. So let's say that you're in history because we know that about they're getting about 100 applications for each of the positions. So let's say I'm early applying for my field, early American history. Let's say there's they're getting 100 applications. I can assume then that the you know, job market for me right in that year would be, you know, around 100 people. We're all going to be applying for the same five to 10 jobs. So that means I have a one in 20 chance of getting an academic job. And according to the AHA, every year I'm on the job market, I have less and less chances 
of landing a tenure track position, not more, less. My jobs, my odds go down every year I'm on the job market. So here's the thing. In the absence of accurate information, people are hanging on to contingent positions with the hope of improving their odds. And yet maybe if you write a book and it wins an award, you might be able to get out of adjunct hell. But chances are you're not going to. In the study that I did, less than 3% of the jobs went to someone with adjunct in their title. VAPs or lecturers, if it was at a prestigious school, yes. But an adjunct, nope. And not certainly after the three to five year mark. You know, when you're looking at VAPs and lecturers, they were moving, you know, three to five years. And then after that, it really was just assistant professors making lateral moves. So if you were thinking about like, do I continue down this path? Do I continue in my contingent position? Or in STEM, should I do more postdocs? You know, no, the postdoc won't help you past a certain time, right? Three to five years. And then if you're not landing an academic job, it moves on. And the interesting thing about postdocs is that people outside of the academy have been doing some interesting studies, um, pushing against the idea that people should actually do postdocs. Because what they've actually found is that the postdoc doesn't actually help people get jobs in industry. That, it, that people with PhDs and people who then do three or five years of postdoc end up in the same positions in industry because industry doesn't recognize postdoc as additional years of experience. So it's an enormous risk that people are taking when they continue on in postdocs. And they should know that. Now, there is some publicly available data if you know where to find it. So for example, I recommend that people take a look at the humanities indicator. It's a wonderful resource full of data and actually not just for humanities. So for example, I was looking at the, that uh, the other day and they were showing that only 17 to 30% of PhDs in STEM work at teach, as teaching faculty in the United States. And that includes people who are not in tenure track positions, but it doesn't include people who are in postdocs. So uh, people in STEM who are maybe lecturers or, um, you know, long-term adjuncts, they would be counted in that 17 to 30%. In the humanities, it's about 56% of PhDs, uh, and that includes non-tenure track and contingent positions who work as teaching faculty in North America. And those are historic numbers. That's the other thing to really keep in mind when you're looking at this aggregate data. That doesn't predict the future. That just tells you what happened in the past. But the point is, a majority of PhDs do not end up in academia as teaching faculty. And we know that. We just don't know these other nuances, like what, you know, if you're not at a top 10 institution, what are your chances? If you're past year three, what are your chances? If you're in your fourth postdoc, what are your chances? That nuance matters. People need that information. Now, here's where, here's where I get really jaded and bitter about the absence of data and information. Who is served by not making job data publicly available, by not pushing for a culture of transparency? And it's the academic system. If this data is publicly available and you learn, as I did for history, that the majority of jobs were going to people from just 10 programs, how likely is it for departments who are not in top 10 programs to continue to attract students to their, pro to, their, to their programs? If you had the data to show that just how few assistant professors moved every year in your field, 
Would you accept that tenure track job at that school you didn't want to teach at, in a city you didn't want to live in, with the hopes that you could beat the odds? If you had the data to show how few adjuncts were ever hired into assistant professor positions, would you keep adjuncting? If you knew that a second postdoc didn't help you land a job in academia, would you? Publicly available data on the reality of the tenure-track job market has the potential to radically destabilize academia. It has the potential to cut off the cheap labor supply that supports so many institutions, declining graduate students, postdocs, and adjuncts. And it would highlight the enormous inequalities in academic hiring that we know, but we don't have the data for. It would show how difficult it is for people who are at state schools who are more likely to be working class, first-gen, and people of color to get academic jobs and to get good academic jobs. And what a lack of innovation if only graduates from a handful of programs who work with just a few scholars end up as tenure-track faculty. You basically have a very small handful of scholars who are determining the future of your field. And when the people who graduate from those programs who work with that small number of faculty end up as faculty in programs that train other graduate students, right? You see the ripple effect. So if only people from the top 10 programs then staff the next 20 to 30 ranked programs, then you're having the majority of your graduate training in a discipline being determined by the scholarly interests of just a handful of people who are at the top of this pyramid. It would show us the gatekeepers. It would show us just how few programs and therefore how few scholars are determining the, tra- the trajectory of entire fields. Like what a reckoning that would be. And it would force departments who are graduating students who tend to never land tenure track positions to publicly confront that reality and rethink the nature of graduate education in their programs because they're not training the next generation of scholars. They are training people who will be innovative and productive workers and citizens, just not in higher education. So then what if the true purpose of graduate education is not to train scholars, but to provide people with education skills to help them build meaningful, impactful careers wherever smart people are needed, as we say at Beyond Prof. But, but the academy doesn't do this. The data is hidden. We continue to provide students with anecdotal information. We continue to pretend that the non-academic careers are choices people are making rather than the thing they do when they flunk out of the academic job market. And because they don't have the data, they internalize that as a failure. I just know that if I had been sitting there at the three-year mark, having earned my PhD and been on the academic job market for three years, and I was struggling to make a decision about whether I would go on the academic job market again, or I would exit, I would have had much more confidence in my decision to exit than I did in that moment. I made the decision in the absence of of evidence. I made the decision because I was fatigued. But had I known that like I was done and it was the right decision to make, I would have spent so much less time feeling terrible about that decision or worrying that I made the wrong decision or what if or what if, because I would have had the information that I needed to make an informed career decision. And that's what we need to provide students and junior scholars. We need to treat the academic job market with the seriousness it deserves. We need to bring our scholarly 
resources, skills, and attention to this problem. We can do this. It's just a research problem. We can crowdsource this. We can provide people with the information they need to make the decisions that they're struggling to make, but with actual accurate information and data. And it would provoke a reckoning in our disciplines around the inequalities within academic hiring. And how powerful would that be? We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Job Search the Smart Way, a podcast for graduate students and PhDs. For more resources to help you launch your next great career, be sure to visit beyondprof.com and sign up for our free events. And remember, smart people work everywhere.